Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. You know us for Nail the Mix, but today I'm here to tell you about Ultimate Drum Production, a brand new course that's going to completely transform the way you think about and record drums. You're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com to learn more. On this episode of the URM Podcast, I've got a really great guest, Mr. James Paul Wisner. And what I really, really liked about this podcast is that we spent a lot more time talking about the mindset and the workflow and the type of determination that you need in order to go from nothing to something or from unknown to known or from dreaming to doing. We talk about everything he did in the early days and how he leveraged that to have a really, really big career. And for those of you who don't understand how to stand out in your local markets or who don't know how you're going to get more work or let people know about how great you are, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, here goes. James Paul Wisner is a multi-gold record producer and mixer, as well as a multi-instrumentalist. He's responsible for records that are considered the greatest in their respective genres, from Under Oath, Ground Shaking, Release, They're Only Chasing Safety, to Dashboard Confessionals, the places you have come to fear the most, not to mention working with powerhouses such as Paramore, Hands Like Houses, I See Stars, and many more. And kind of like me, James comes from a musical family having both parents in the industry. His mother is a successful singer, songwriter, and vocal coach, and his uh, his dad is none other than Jimmy the Wiz Wisner, who's worked on over 100 records and has 36 gold and 22 platinum awards, which is mm. nuts. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, man. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was actually, just before getting on the podcast, I was dropping my dad off at the airport. He's flying to Korea right now. He's a symphony conductor. Oh, wow. He's going to okay. go, yeah, he's going to go uh, do like a month in South Korea. So I can, I know what it's like to come from a uh, musical family. And right. so I was wondering, okay, so you come from a high quality musical background um, did you begin learning recording at a young age, or did you start with music and instruments? Well, about five years old, I started messing around with the piano, uh, mm-hmm. and and I had some I had some lessons, but I I was very quick with my ear, and so I kind of had my own train of of uh, progression with that. And at and my dad had a, a demo studio in his basement. And so uh, it was really around 11 years old. My mother asked me to make some sort of recording. And around 11 years old is when I discovered the Beatles. Uh, and they completely freaked me out. And I, I listened to nothing but the Beatles for about two years. And I was so th- when you say discovered, do you mean that uh, did you find them on your own? And did your parents introduce you to them? Uh, a friend of mine did. And we even had a little okay. band. Uh, and I was playing drums and and uh, but as I got into them because they they had such a big impact on me, I was also fascinated with their recording techniques. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of the records in particular, Sergeant Pepper's, uh, they had two four track machines and and my dad had a four track machine and a two track machine in his basement. And so what I did is I would do four tracks, uh, and this is like a, yeah, eleven years old. Uh, uh, four tracks on the one machine and bounce it down to the the two track and then go back wow. to the other machine and add another two track tracks and so I did a couple of eight track recordings uh, 
like that. And that was kind of my start into uh, recording. And did uh, did he show you what to do, or did you just kind of watch f- for a number of years and figure it out yourself? I, I basically just figured it out myself uh, because I was just really into it. And, and uh, I'd gone in, in with him to the studio uh, a few times, uh, and, and I was just pretty fascinated with it. Uh, but it was really, like I say, around 11 where I just, it, it was a, a complete... Uh, 180, and I just got very obsessed with the whole thing of music, and and uh, and then starting to record. Did uh, did you by any chance surprise them when you showed the? Uh, I mean, that's, that's some big stuff for an 11 year old to figure out how to bounce between multiple tape machines. It's, you know, that's pretty impressive stuff. Um, I I I did with with my mom in particular, uh, and and. Uh, yeah, it was just uh, it, it was just like the the beginning, and then you know at a certain point I moved down to Florida because my my folks had divorced and my dad was in New Jersey and that's where I was doing that. And mm-hmm. around twelve years old, I came down to Florida, and uh, and my mother was incredibly uh, supportive and even built took the garage and made a studio out of it. So in my high school years, I had this eight track reel to reel a a Tascam mm-hmm. and. Was was starting to just develop basic, you know, recording with that, and you know, we would record these uh, covers of you know, like Rush or you know, Led Zeppelin stuff like that. You know, the, that was actually kind of my next question. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't I wasn't like uh, exactly pushed to go into music, but they certainly did not get in my way. Right, right, and and any time that I showed promise for anything they did support it i mean they were a little skeptical about a few things like electric guitar yeah as opposed to classical music but you know um as i went along they definitely helped it out a lot more than uh friends of mine who did not have musical parents for instance so i'm just wondering did you feel an obligation to go into the music industry or were you encouraged to do whatever you wanted and it just so happened to be music yeah, my my dad didn't really push me on anything, uh, you know, and and he was mm-hmm. very supportive. But it wasn't like a thing from from either one of them. I mean, my mother was very supportive. Once I started getting into it, though, uh, you know, they were they were totally cool with it. I think it's interesting though because you had very classical parents, yes. uh, and and so then you took a, a very different direction in the in the type of music. Uh, you went into well. It's it's kind of funny because I guess when I was like eleven or twelve or thirteen, I wasn't allowed to listen to rock music. They didn't allow uh, us to watch MTV or listen to rock or any of that. Like it was other than like the Beatles. Um, other than the Beatles, it was all classical music. Interesting. And right? my grandmother actually went behind their backs and gave me The Doors and gave me Led Zeppelin, gave me Black Sabbath. Uh, actually, would buy me, like, bought me, like, Nirvana records. Um, kind of, it, when my dad found out, he wasn't happy. But he eventually went along with it and was cool. Right, but, okay. But my grandmother actually totally went behind their back and corrupted me. So <laughs> That's funny. It was kind of cool. You know, um, it, now thinking back on that, it seems kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the the one thing for me, I know, 
my mother in particular wanted me to have the lessons. And at a certain point, and I had the studio down in Florida, and, and I said, you know, I, I have to say that the lessons are actually getting in my way uh, because I was so realizing that my ear was developing. And then the whole technical side uh, at the time was just, yeah, very much getting in my way. And, and uh, she wasn't happy about that. And I actually made her a deal. I said, listen, give me six months <laughs> to, to see what I can do with, with the studio on my own. And then at that point, if... You know, if you still feel that I should be taking lessons, unfortunately, at you know, at the end of the six months, you had no problem. So <laughs> that's that's kind of similar to how it was with guitar. Um, they made me pick up classical guitar. Uh, they didn't know the difference between uh, you know the styles of. They didn't know the difference between acoustic and a classical, or you know that electric guitar players play with a pick, and it's essentially a completely different instrument. They right. they just figured electric guitars make noise, um, but he's going to need to learn classical guitar, or we're not going to buy him an electric guitar. So I had to prove it for six months. Okay, um, and then after that, they uh, you know they had to. Because that was the deal, right? So they got the guitar, but they insisted that it wasn't going to happen any other way. Interesting. Okay, I, I'm actually kind of glad about it now. Um, I'm glad that that kind of education was imposed because I would have never, I would have never chosen it. Right, and right. It's stuff that definitely helped out over the years. But so you say that it took you about six months um, to get to a point where. She was cool with what you were doing on a practical level? Yeah, I mean, at, at the point, I mean, I'm 15, you know, 14, 15 years old. Uh, and so when I was showing her the results that I was getting uh, by doing it mm -hmm. on my own, uh, it, it was enough for her to not, you know, press the point. So Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really cool. Did, uh, were you taking paying clients then or working with your own band like what was what were you working on well i i had a writing partner of mine at the time and i actually primarily played piano uh, i picked up guitar w when i was about 15 uh but my writing wise was was more piano based and so uh, i was recording originals uh with with my writing partner um and then i had a band where we went out and played like Led Zeppelin and, and Black Sabbath and, and stuff like that. We'd go around to the clubs and very fortunately mm -hmm. had a couple of really talented guys, uh, particularly the, the drummer, a guy named Steve Murphy. And, uh, and so, yeah, we would record, uh, there's a song by Rush called The Trees. We did a, a, you know, a, a cover of that. But mostly it was actually just uh, originals at the time. And so I tried to do these big elaborate originals with the eight track and, yeah, that's uh, that's basically all I did. You know, go to school and then come back and do that. So I want to key in on the fact that you played piano f first. Um, I know that at least on a school level, and I actually th agree with this. Uh, people think that piano is the best instrument for writing because it's laid out for it, as opposed to guitar, where you know. Certain notes happen multiple times. Uh, you have to think about fingerings, positions, all this stuff. Notes don't sustain very long. Um, it, there's a lot of things about guitar that make it not as, I guess, intuitive or 
as powerful or versatile of a writing instrument as just say a piano. Um, do you do you feel that way? Uh, and it, did you ever feel that way? You know, I don't. I don't look at it like that. Uh, the the way to me, they're two uh, two different instruments that you know because I'll write songs both on piano and on guitar, mm-hmm. so they both. Uh, piano on one end, yeah, it's all laid out. And, and and so, you know, as far as being a little more melodic and just there's a certain flow with that. Uh, and then guitar has its own thing, you know, with, with the way the chords are. Um, so I've never really looked at preferring one or the other. Uh, and so it's more just a matter of, of being different. But definitely with piano, for me, in terms of a logical sense of the way that it's laid out and the way that I started... You know, and yeah, I agree with you on that. This is coming from someone that sucks at piano, by the way. Like, I never got good at piano. I got good at guitar, and uh, okay, yeah, I was encouraged to learn piano, and I ne- and never really did it too well. Um, and I always kind of regretted it because every really good writer I knew played piano to some degree. Okay, yeah. Um, if uh, I don't know, if a thirteen-year-old came up to you now and said, "I want to get good at songwriting." Uh, would you would you suggest a particular instrument, um, or would you? Uh, what would your suggestions be? Uh, inter- I mean, it's interesting when if you're saying rock or heavy music, I would say guitar. Uh, if it was an overall sense, I'd say piano. If I'm looking at starting on on one, and and the thing for me is that each instrument kind of gives you a different type of inspiration, and even the difference between acoustic guitar or electric guitar. Uh, you know, electric guitar that there's certain feel, and I mean, then we can get into you know, depending on the amp tone and all that kind of stuff. So, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, how many different instruments do you play? Um, I mean, well, let me see. I mean, I guess four or five. I, I, if I look at uh, keyboards, guitar, I mean, I can play bass, uh, I can play drums, I can think like a drummer much better than I can play, so I can play very basic type of drums, but. Yeah, I'd say that's it. And the- I, I find that with drums, uh, I feel like the minimum requirement for a producer is to at least be able to think like one. Yeah, because yeah. then uh, you make suggestions that are physically possible and grounded in reality, uh, as opposed to making suggestions that are you know, more suited for an octopus or something. Yeah, drums are so important as far as laying down the groundwork uh, of of what you're putting all the production into, so I I get into certain riffs, certain certain moments that that the drums create uh, before a section, a, another section, or if it cuts out. Uh, so yeah, it's basically it's that foundation. So back to uh, back to piano and writing though. Uh, do you have a background in harmony? Like, um, do you know all the all the theory and does that if so, does that translate into when you work with bands? Actually, no. And it, and it is something now that I'm older that I would like to get uh, an understanding from the, the technical side. Um, but like I said before, I took, you know, as far as developing my, my ear and what sounds good. Um, so it's, you know, it's basically my ear that I go on. And I think that's probably the most powerful way to do it anyways. Um, I'm guessing that the answer is yes, but I need to confirm because, you know, uh, 
I can tell you from my own experience, like I said earlier, like there were certain styles of music that were not allowed at my house. Um, were you exposed to a wide variety of genres when you were a kid due to your parents, or was there not much music at the house? There wasn't a whole lot of music at at the house, really. My 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 father was kind of doing his thing, and uh, and like I say, sometimes I would go into the studio with him, but at home, uh, it, it wasn't like there was music always playing or anything like that. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would look through his uh, collection of records, uh, but like I said before, when when a friend of mine introduced me to the Beatles, uh, that had this hypnotic completely consuming impact on me and then truthfully for two years straight i just listened to nothing but the beatles there was there was just something about the the energy in there just something about there there was a perfection to it uh and i think it had something to do also with the times uh, that they were creating and uh yeah it just had a a big impact and before then there wasn't anything in particular really other than me just kind of playing around uh, you know, with the piano and developing that. Do you still revisit the Beatles stuff? Um, yes, I do occasionally. Uh, and, and I'm more interested now because they're, they're starting to remix uh, the records. So Sgt. Pepper's uh, just got remixed and George Martin has been an influence of mine, the, the producer uh, and his son, Giles Martin at Abbey Road. They've, they've been going through this whole elaborate process to remix the original stuff. Uh, so lately I've been, been interested again in it. Yeah. There was something on the anthologies that came out, you know, the, the one, the ones that came out, I don't know, there's more, but they came out in the early nineties where they did, I forget which track, but they did a remix of one of their heavier tracks with drums up. And I believe that it was Paul playing and he was bashing the drums and I had never heard one of their songs with drums at a level where I would want to hear it like a more modern recording right okay and it just sounded crushing it was amazing yeah I I couldn't believe how good it sounded that's the thing that you hear with on the remix uh those engineers were so freaking good and uh they were getting really good tracks and that was an article that I read that that uh uh, Giles Martin was saying that that they were kind of expecting to maybe hear the tracks not sa- sound so great, and uh, they said the quality of them were were pretty incredible. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I kind of went on a Beatles kick a month ago for like a night, and just you know watched a bunch of live videos. And yeah, I do this once a year or something now. Um, I used to be obsessed with them, and in these live videos. They're actually really, really good technically um, for you know for the era and what they were doing. But and I was especially watching Ringo, and he actually hit harder than I thought. Mm. And like um, he had it more together than I think he's given credit for, or than I than I realized. And obviously, the engineers then were. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a cool YouTube uh, uh, video, and it's all these great drummers uh, that are talking about how amazing Ringo was and the feel that he had, and that it was a very particular style, and that mm-hmm. what he did was not subtle for them. So, yeah. 
No, there he does all kinds of non-traditional things and very creative things, and you know, it's funny. The I'm I'm not a huge Metallica fan, but I mean, obviously, the biggest metal band of all time, and Lars is not considered. You know, a great drummer, um, especially when you can compare him to lots of the other drummers in metal bands. He's definitely technically not close to a lot of people who came after him um, or even parallel to him. But he has, if you really start breaking down his his patterns and his beats and where he places fills, it's really non-traditional. And it's really interesting, and I think that that's a big part of why their songs work for people. But he doesn't get any credit because he's not, you know, he's not that tight live, and he doesn't play fast double bass, and he can't play to a click. Right, right. All these, all these things that you expect out of a good drummer he doesn't do. But... Uh, but I, his stuff's really creative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the great bands uh, will have a drummer that has a very particular style. And uh, this album that's coming out uh, at the end of the month uh, for this band, The Dangerous Summer, uh, the, the drummer, Ben Cato, uh, is an incredibly musical type of drummer. So the way that he's playing his parts, it was it was just a real pleasure to to work with him because he did interesting things that really worked uh, with with the writing of the the material uh, and and it has a huge impact on the on the end result. So when you're uh, I guess considering a production project, or I, I don't know if you hunt them down or they come to you or but just say in the in the courting phase. Is there anything in particular you look for in drummers? Does that ever help, I guess, identify that you want to work with a with a band? Yeah, you know, uh, well, I like to first off talk to bands months before they come in and have a couple of meetings uh, throughout the process. And one of the things, because as, as I've been doing this, uh, you start realizing certain conversations that are <laughs> wise to have with bands uh, months before they come in. And even in initially considering the band, it's like, can the drummer play to a click? And not just play to the click, but can he groove to it? You know, does he have mm-hmm. uh, experience with that? Uh, and then uh, also to encourage him, hey, you know, uh, practice playing to the click and, and get it to where you're not just trying to keep time, but that you're able to really flow with it. I'm sorry, is that answering the question I made, Mr. Part? Yeah, it, it does. And I think that um, that's, you know, that's the mark of not just a good drummer, but a really good musician is one who understands how to, how to groove with the click because, you know, it, lots of times what works for a part or a take is not playing right on it. It's slightly behind or slightly ahead, absolutely. depending on absolutely. what feeling you're going for. So, yeah, that was actually a tough thing for me to learn how to do as a guitarist. I had a, uh, I made friends with this bass player when I was at Berkeley who basically told me that I sucked. And <laughs> the reason I sucked was because whenever I tried to play to a click, metronome I was playing right on the beat and that it was just vanilla and I sucked and what I had to do was start 
you know, practice the exact same things that I was practicing, but only have the metronome on two and a four so that I mentally had to place the one and the three. Um, and uh, he just told me that that would work and that I would develop my pocket and somehow I'd be able to learn how to place things behind the beat from there. And it worked wonders. Like, so anyone who wants to get better at this, who's listening, try the very, very simple thing of putting your metronome on two and four. And it's harder than you think. And it works. It works wonders. At least it did for me. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And that is a that's a big deal because uh, I'll notice that a lot of drummers tend to be a little bit ahead of the beat. Uh, And Mm -hmm. and, you know, occasionally when I work with a drummer who's really got experience or, or understands those aspects, you know, it's it's awesome because then we can say, hey, okay, this part just drag it a little bit. And yeah, it makes a big difference in everything. Do you ever um, say you really, really like the songs, but you do your homework on a band and maybe maybe there's just one talented guy in the band or something like the singer or, you know, um, it, do you well, what's your approach then? Is it do you think about hiring a session guy or editing it or trying to get the drummer to get better? What's your initial instinct when? when you approach that situation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, there have been some drummers where I probably could have brought in somebody else. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to think, I mean, it depends if it's like a, a, a label thing, then it's definitely something to, to look at, uh, you know, and address, but I haven't really found where a band that's signed, I'm having a problem so much with, with the drummer unsigned demo type of stuff. Uh, I've had a couple of situations and uh, yeah, I haven't really gone the route of bringing somebody in. I I haven't had a situation where, where someone's, you know, so bad that I can't make it work. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it may be something I talk to the band about and say, listen, you know, the, the, the drummer needs to, you, you should have somebody who can be a little more competent if it comes down to it. I've definitely had some situations where, you know, someone comes in and they don't quite know their parts, you know, uh, they, they don't have it down, which, uh, you know, that's in one of my initial speeches too, is please, even though we're going to be changing parts or doing some stuff, you know, go over your stuff and come in and because the band is expecting a lot from you as a producer. So I, part of it, I realize is to let them know what I need from them so that we can expect a, a, a good result. Because if they're coming in to me and wanting to just unload this thing of, of, uh, of incompetence in certain areas, it's, it's, it ends up being very time-wasting and, and not fair, you know? And, and so I've realized that I have to kind of lay, lay that down. Uh, I had a, a situation recently where we started the, the drums uh, and the drummer just didn't sound like he knew it. Uh, and I was like, "Hey, what's what's going on?" Uh, and I said, "Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I've I've got other things going on. I'll keep working on those things. Why don't you go home and get this down? Because I I need that from you. You know, otherwise, um, it, it's something I call spending twice as much time to get half the result. You know, yep, <laughs> right. And and it's yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. And another phrase for me is uh, I never want to be waiting to accidentally get it right." Like like listening to somebody be playing something, right. and it's like I hope he accidentally can can play it right, and uh, <laughs> and I've had you know for me I don't I haven't really gone the route of getting uh, 
studio music musicians to replace stuff. Um, I've kind of developed some techniques to work around musicians who aren't as, as uh, good as honestly they, they should be. And then also there's sometimes where it's like, if I'm finding that the player is very rough, I'm like, Hey man, uh, I, who else in this band can play this part? And there's usually a guy, the guy who is the primary writer who, uh, sometimes can play better than their own guitar player. And I'm like, listen, man, I need you to play it or I'll play it, you know, in, in the moment, if it's a particular type of part. So, so it sounds like you're uh, like, and I want to go into more of your initial speeches, but it sounds like you are trying to impart a sense of partnership with the band rather than uh, you're just a dude that they hired to do X. It sounds like you're approaching them from a standpoint of we're in this together and I can't, you know, I can't do my part without you doing yours. Help me help you. Basically, well, yeah, uh, you know, d different producers have different attitudes, and and sometimes it depends what the situation is. But mine is is uh, what I tell the band is I I want things to come from them uh, before I start because I'm a guy with ideas all day long. Uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll come in and in my own experience in different situations, I've done certain projects, and then I go, you know, I was a little heavy handed. Uh, I, I never want the band to walk away from what we did and then have them be like, who is this? <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, yeah. being that, that I just came in and just made my mark and, and bulldozed my way through it. Um, and that's actually something that bands will, will get bitter about, even if they're successful. Um, oh, I've, sure. Right. Yeah. You know, I've talked to bands in person or read in interviews, even after, you know, maybe they released the biggest album of their career. And if sometimes if they feel like it was more the producer's album, they won't go back, even if it, you know, even if it had the most sales. Interesting. Yeah. That's kind of always been, um, for me, what motivates me is wanting to get together with a group of talented guys and bring out what their potential is. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so, uh, I want to facilitate that and kind of point, you know, point that in the, in the right direction, but I want it to come from them. And ideally I want to work with people who are bringing something and then we can play ball, you know, from there. Um, and that's, that's the intention that I have. So one thing that I always encourage uh, people who want to learn production, want to make it their careers, is to get as, you know, to do as much work before you even get the band in your studio. Do as much homework as you can on the band and develop a, a, a dialogue with them, and, you know, figure out what the problems are and try to get them solved in advance and you know, the months and months in advance, yes. like not like two weeks, like, right. like for, you know, if you find out that the drummer doesn't hit very hard and it's, you need that, well, you know, he better start working on it a few months out so that he doesn't lose steam in the studio after half a song, That's it. for instance. Absolutely. Uh, though, to me, those conversations that are months ahead uh, are extremely important. Uh, another thing for me is having the band sit down and talk about 
what they're trying to do. What what kind of music are they making? Because I've had, uh, well, I had a particular thing when I was doing the Under Oath, uh, They're Only Chasing Safety, and uh, we started background vocals, and, and we were doing all these different types of layered background vocals. Uh, and the the next day, a couple of the guys were like, you know, we, we don't want to do that. Like, couple some of the guys loved it. That's They were all into it. And then a couple other guys were like, you know, this is making it too poppy. And it was mm-hmm. and it was right there where I was like, you know, I'll tell you what, that's fine. Uh, but why don't you guys, you know, just get on the same page uh, and then we can... You know, because I hate retracking. Uh, yeah. You know, you get into that situation where where somebody in the band was like, "Oh, I didn't know we were going in this direction," or some kind of thing like that. And it's and so I, I learned pretty early on is like, "Listen, guys, make sure you're all on the same page. Get your communication right. And also, what you know, as a band, uh, what what are the the bands that you're listening to? You know, that really uh, are are doing it for you. And it, and it's nice for me to just get a sense of that. So I can get a sense of where to point my creativity with things. So I'm not giving them ideas or going somewhere that that they're not really looking for, you know. So on the topic of inner band communication, that's <laughs> that's a very interesting one because you know let's let's be real, they're not always the best communicators, and it's so so important. Um, if you notice that they might have a communication problem. Would you step in and try to help them with that? Uh, if I see there's a problem, yeah, because uh, it gets in the way of the process. Uh, it gets in the way of the result we're, we're going for. Uh, fortunately, it's never been any, uh, I haven't had any too many instances of it being that kind of problem. I had one band uh, that, that I had to say, listen, uh, we got to really get our communication because uh, everyone was just arguing, and then they would argue about the way to to resolve the problem, and and it was just wasting uh, a lot of time. That reminds me of my band. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons, one of the reasons that you know there were multiple reasons for why we didn't continue. Um, but you know, it's these problems actually in a band level start way early. Yeah, this before we were signed or anything. We had these communication issues and didn't take them seriously. And over time, as the stakes got higher and higher, these issues became more and more of a thing. And, you know, communication is everything. Yeah. In my business now, uh, you know, we're my two partners in it are very strong minded people. And I'm a very strong-minded person. We're three alphas working together. Right. And it's working great because we talk everything out, everything. And we are not afraid to piss each other right. off. We're not afraid. We're not afraid to shoot each other down. And we all understand that it's for the same purpose at the end of the day. But I've never had that kind of communication in a situation before. And I've also never had anything work out this well before. So to me... Communication is the single most important thing you can do to uh, ensure a project's success. Yeah, you know, a band is a, you know, if you've got four or five guys, uh, you know, it's that thing where, in a way, it's like a marriage. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's a lot about uh, communication. Uh, so I find it, yeah, uh, and one of the things too, because uh, you, 
it's having the space to disagree about stuff. And and yep. one of the things I talk to the bands about is because sometimes a band comes in and it's like, all right, we're going to make this awesome thing. And with that mental expectation that everything's just going to go smoothly. But if one thing I've definitely learned is that sometimes it's the tension and, and, and the not going smoothly, it's the breakdowns that are needed to, to get to the end result. So a big thing for me is getting clear on what we're committed to. And when you're committed to something, then it's also allowing the space if we have some bad moments. Sometimes the singer, you know, and it's with singers a lot, there's a lot of psychological stuff. Sometimes, uh, you know, things don't go well, you're having an off day and, and then the guys can get really bummed in it. And it's kind of a thing where it's like, look, this is part of what's going on and we're going to have our ups and downs, but we're committed to something. So let's just keep going and we'll get there. And, and that way it isn't seen as this major problem, you know, uh, that, that we're, we're going through this so that we can end up uh, with, with the best thing we can. And so when, uh, when you talk to bands up front, um, are these some of the things that you that you talk about like when you first approach a band you said that like you you give them a speech basically or you cover certain well topics. this is if we're uh, if we're working together and it's okay. that first uh conversation of just introducing you know and, and getting to know each other a little bit and i get a sense of what are they trying to do you know where are they at if it's a you know second or third album what's what are the things i'll find out things like you know, with other people that they worked with, what did you like and what did you not like, you know, uh, in, as far as working with another producer. Um, and so that's kind of the point where uh, I'm talking about the process in general, getting, mm -hmm. getting clear on our commitment. And part of that thing is letting them know that it may not always be this wonderful thing. There may, you know, we may get a little depressed, <laughs> you know, or feel like, oh man, we can't, can't find this or however, you know, it's usually never anything major, uh, but that just to give room for that and then and then everything will be fine. It's interesting what you say about the, you know, being committed to something because it, what, I just want to echo what you're saying, but when you all share the same goal and you know that you share the same goal, then for some reason when you don't have such a good day or so, something doesn't go as well as planned in in the process of getting there, since you're all on the same page about where you're trying to go, you're not going to have the problem of uh, four people having four different outcomes in their head and four completely different ways of how we're going to fix this problem um, that are incompatible with each other. It's a lot more of a team effort that way. And for some reason, it's just a lot easier to weather the tough times. Absolutely. And and I am sure, I can't imagine, like in, in the business that you guys have been building, which is amazing, uh, what you. you guys have been doing, and, and uh, that you have to have that shared commitment. Because it gives it, you're basically creating uh, as a group the context uh, the bubble that everything is sitting in. And that way, it's not such a big deal, you know, Not if, if there is a disagreement or something, no one is just looking at that minute detail and making it more than what it is. It's really that everyone's committed to something. Uh, and, and 
another thing that I tell the bands too is that you know we're trying to make something great. We're trying to make something that that uh, is the best that we can do. So there's a really good chance that some moments are going to come up and be confronting. You know, mm-hmm. we're pushing each other. I'm pu- I'm pushing them to. I want to see what they're made out of when we're when we're doing stuff. I want to see how far we can take it uh, and still feel authentic to them. So uh, it's just allowing that space because we're reaching for something. So you know that makes me think of a scenario. Um, just uh, if anyone's listening and you don't really understand what we're saying, this tell me if this is a scenario that kind of encompasses what you're talking about. Like so, let's just say that the shared vision of a record is to have it sound. Uh, very organic but powerful, uh, like say like a Mastodon record or something. And um, you know, in order to do that, you're going to need the drummer to actually play the songs really well and really hard. And there's kind of no room to there's no room to say okay, we'll just edit that or yeah, we'll just replace that or whatever. It has to be what it has to be. And so if the drummer has a bad day. You know, he's generally awesome, but, you know, his feet just don't work that day or something. Uh, you're not going to have everybody, you know, one person saying, dude, we can just program this song. Fuck it. Let's just program this song. And one person being like, dude, you can just edit or whatever. Like everyone, if you all have the shared vision, this is going to be an organic but powerful record. Then you just have to try it again the next day. Exactly. And hope that the drum. Yeah, there's no, there's not going to be that all those differing ideas that basically go with a different vision. Absolutely. And that's, I think that is the role, part of the role of the producer is to keep your eye on the vision uh, because sometimes, you know, people are getting into details and, and it's veering off. If, if you, you know, you're the guy who is keeping that vision in mind and supporting the guys to do what's needed. So yeah, in that scenario, it's like yeah, come, you know, just come back tomorrow if it's if it's not quite happening, uh, then that's what we need to do. So let's go back in time a little bit, and on the topic of vision, I'm thinking back to what we were originally talking about of you songwriting and recording uh, when you were a teenager. At what point did you start to, I guess, realize um, that you needed to have a vision? For a project, or at what point did you start to develop your own vision? Yeah, well, you know, I had the studio when I was a teenager, uh, and I had the classic scenario of of my folks getting uh, divorced, and then basically I was out on my own, and so I kind of went from a comfortable <laughs> existence and having being able to have some means and have the studio <clears throat> to to live in with two other friends of mine in a in a trailer. So it was kind of a wake up call. And, and so I drifted for a bit and, uh, and I was about how old were you in that? Uh, I was 18. It was right after I graduated, uh, high school and the summer I became 18, everything fell apart. But, and, but you already had years of, I guess, training, basic, basic training. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of, of, yeah, of making some records. And so a few years went by and I was just in survival mode. And so for me, it was kind of a, a cert- I, and I kind of had this thing like somehow something was just going to happen and everything would be great. And after a few years, I'm like, well, nothing's happening. And and I kind of had a, uh, you know, a, a personal moment, a, a spiritual type of, you know, life 
uh, moment where it's like, hey, man, uh, I knew I had ability, but it was the reality of you ain't that special. Like, no one's going to come and do this. You, you need to move. And I guess the big realization for me at the time was if you don't do anything different, 10 years are going to pass and you'll be in the exact same place. And and something about that realization, you know, was a combination of scaring the hell out of me and making me realize, man, this is it. Let's start doing something. And so I realized that trying to be an artist, I really didn't have it for, you know, the commitment to that. And I thought, what do I really want to do? And the thing for me was uh, I loved recording and, uh, and I wanted to be in that. Uh, and, and so that's where I just started. Uh, and I, I was delivering pizza at the time. And uh, I just started taking some money and, and putting it aside. And, and then I had an opportunity. And, and it was kind of like a serendipitous uh, sign from God for me where uh, a guy I'd done recording as an artist at a studio in Miami, a place called Studio Center. And they had an SSL in, in the A room. And then they had a... MIDI programming tracking B room. And he said, uh, I'm letting people train for the B room and whoever figures stuff out first, I'm going to start giving work to. And at that moment I was like, well, I'm going to be the guy yep. that's going to get this work. And I basically just got very single-minded and I thought I'm going to make this happen. Uh, I was delivering pizza like 50 hours a week and then going to this place like 50 hours a week. Uh, and, and I got it to, and you were 18. Uh, no, or? at this point I'm, I'm in my early twenties. I'd say about okay. 23. I let a few years pass by, uh, and you know, just, just being in survival mode and, and so that sense of the clock ticking was starting clock was starting to get a little louder. Oh, very much. Point. And, and I was yeah. thinking about like, I was thinking about who I was at that point And if I was really trying to meet somebody and, 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 want to have a family and things like that. I'm like, I'm not really where and who I want to be to bring somebody into my life uh, to, mm -hmm. to do this. And so the that whole thing was like, dude, you know, I knew I had uh, talent, but I knew I had to make stuff happen. And, and so uh, that that's how it started, where I was working at this other studio um, until I fought, got enough money to slowly piece by piece build up uh, my own little studio and then start just doing it myself. It's it's uh, pretty amazing what can happen when you feel that sense of urgency and at the same time, like that realization that the universe is not going to hand you anything. And if it does, it is... a. a an accident, basically. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, luck happens; it does, but you definitely shouldn't count on on it. And also, you can encourage luck by by focusing on what outcome you want. Um, Absolutely, focusing hard. Yeah. Well, that was a big thing for me, and, and maybe this starts getting into the metaphysical side. But uh, I basically, at that moment, was. Like, I'm going to make this happen. I didn't give myself an option to do anything else. I, you know, mm -hmm. back at the time, delivering pizza was the only thing I could stand to make money. There was no way that I was going to be in, in some type of nine to five type of thing. And, uh, and once I just started having that single minded intention and I did 
whatever. I mean, I did visualization. I, uh, I made sure that negative stuff wasn't having a, any kind of impact on me because I didn't have time for it. I basically was like, you know, I, I don't have time for my own negative crap. Uh, let's, you know, keep my eye on, on what I'm trying to do here. And then I noticed out of that, uh, I, and I think I found that to be the way things seem to work, that if you have that kind of intention, then certain things start happening. Because I definitely had some serendipitous events happen after I'd been doing it for a couple of years, and they really led me to a direction that I wanted to go in. Yeah, the thing about allowing negative thoughts to take up too much mental real estate, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's a metaphysical thing or not, like, you know, that's, and we'll never know. But I do think that uh, whatever you focus on uh, intently, you're going to somehow uh, create a situation that's kind of like it. So much in the same way that, a, you know, a really insecure guy um, in a relationship with a girl, uh, I'm sure you've met this guy that always thinks his girl is cheating on him. Right. And brings it up constantly and talks about it to all his friends and uh, turns himself by bring by focusing on this too much. He stops doing the things that uh, made the relationship work in the first place and in essence becomes a different person to uh, to his significant other. And sometimes she does end up cheating on him, but not because he predicted it, but because uh, he kind of became a whiny loser. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what, yeah. Um, you can really sabotage yourself. Yeah, because if I took one moment, particularly in those early days, well, I remember, uh, you know, I had set up my gear and I basically was doing stuff out of my second floor apartment. And I had set up this studio and I'd put in so much time to wanting to build this studio up that once I set it up, I looked at it and I had this incredibly fearful like realization like what the hell am I going to do with this stuff because I had nobody at the time I had just built yeah, up now it's real right all of a sudden I was like and and uh and that was like okay well let's let's start this and you know and it's not only that if you're I, I've kind of noticed I don't want to make too much out of it but sometimes when you're really trying to stretch outside of yourself uh and you're dealing with other people sometimes other people are not being so supportive and uh, and and you're kind of dealing with outside circumstances, and you just got to blow that off. You cannot, for me, to to get into the drama of it or to be right about it. Uh, no time for that. It's like, what are you doing? What's next? Uh, if there's failure, great. Let, let's just keep going. Um, and that ends up being what it, what I found, what 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 it takes. Because otherwise, you've got a lot of. Stuff that can waste your time, you know, stuff that you're the only uh, positive thing you're getting is something to be right about, but it's not forwarding anything in your life. You're not creating the life that you're trying to create. Uh, yeah. So you're human, though. Uh, you're, you're definitely human. And part of being human, I think, is having doubts. Yeah. And so I think yep. that what separates, um, you know, there's lots of things that separate someone who's made it work from someone who hasn't. But I think one of them 
is not that they never have negative thoughts, but it's that they know what to do with them. And so I'm wondering what how what did you do besides you know besides the understanding that you don't have time for that like right no in, no. in the moment in the moment oh yeah no no it? i mean uh there is a lot of a lot of pain uh and and it's only something for me now uh well really over the last couple of years where uh i you know yeah i i suffered through a lot of stuff but fortunately had enough of a sense of being, you know, keep knowing that what was important was to keep my eye on my commitment and, and what I, yeah, my goal. Uh, and so for me, yeah, I definitely had moments. I mean, for me, the, particularly in the, that time period, dealing with the computers and trying to record on computers and, and the all kinds of, the never ending onslaught of technical uh, issues of trying to just jump. Kind of like we just had with Skype. Right, right. Well, you're just dealing, that's part of the the thing, but it was brutal. I would have stuff that would just, uh, it was brutal. And I would be calling tech support guys and they'd be like, oh, we haven't heard of that. Uh, Keep us updated on that, Jim. You know, let us know how that problem goes. And I'm like, thanks a lot. You know, uh, yeah, you you have your pain uh, and, and I'll, you know, I'll admit I had some breakdowns because you're you're trying to create something and some, some things don't go at all the way that you want it to and it can knock you down. And the thing is, is to just get back up and and just keep going. So that was the thing is just not stopping, really. Man, you know, back in the early 2000s, that's also when I got my computer rig, uh, you know, when I first started recording. And I do remember the technical problems and I do remember being on with tech support and I do remember <laughs> discovering problems for them. All right. And I right. also remember how it affected people who were in the same situation as me. And there are some people who did quit over it or who yeah, would right? like stall projects for six months or mm. more over stuff like that. Whereas for me it was like I'm going to just take this pain and keep trying. And eventually, you know, eventually I got a computer that worked and figured it out. Yeah. It took a couple of years, but I know people who never even got past that because, it, I mean, it is really, it was really frustrating. Yeah. Really frustrating um, back then to try to to just try to work sometimes all you want to do you know get getting to work doing the work is hard enough but like yeah <laughs> it was hard to even get started because of the technical problems yeah and and it was also just coming into being switching over from you know these uh eight at recorders that were recording on vhs tape and then uh all of a sudden you know you're able to start doing audio tracks in the computer and uh yeah. And yeah, it, it was that thing of like, okay, we, we just got to keep going here and, uh, and find, you know, find the thing that works and, and not give up. So, so you wandered for about five years until you got that, that job. Um, and when you got that job, uh, in Miami. I'm assuming that that's the studio you were just talking about, the one in the apartment. That's the one you were building on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, how long did it take between when you first got that paying gig in Miami to when the studio that you were building on your own was 
capable of even having a client that could pay you and you could do the work. Yeah, I, I would say it was over about a three-year period. Okay. That sounds about right. That's uh, I, I mean, I'm just I'm trying to get time frames on this because I think it's really important for people coming up to understand that this shit takes time. Um, it takes years, and it's a lot of the years are not necessarily spent getting good. Like, I mean, obviously you do have to do that part, um, but that's almost assumed. You know, if you're going to be trying to record people professionally or you know, do anything professionally, but, you know, specifically in the creative fields, your skills are assumed. It's whether or not you can deal with that other bullshit, that's what's going to really make the difference. So three years till you could take clients and what kind of clients were you getting at first? Well, I was I was taking whatever I could. My my thing at that point was really segueing out of delivering pizza into mm-hmm. into doing that. And so what I did, and and this was the thing of just you kind of make it up, or you know, at at the time was just making it up. Was um, they had a local music magazine, very local music magazine called Rag Magazine, and I was down in Plantation, uh, which is by Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so uh, I put out these ads, and I, and I knew that was a bit lower than what my competition was doing. Mm-hmm. And I would do that. Uh, I, I had the ads, and then I was going to open mic nights in Miami, and I had a little, you know, portable, you know, CD Walkman type of thing. And and I'd hear someone good, and I'd say, hey, you know, this is the kind of stuff I'm doing, uh, and just, you know, little by little, just started getting any t- uh, type of client. Because uh, for me at the time, 15 bucks an hour, learning and doing what I loved uh, and, and just, you know, slowly building things up was 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 the only way that I could see to, to start it off. Um, it's amazing how ads worked back then. Um, when I first started my studio, I placed a, a classified ad in lo- the local the local music magazine um, and it worked. Uh, I, I advertised three songs free, hundred bucks a song. After that, um, awesome. and my phone started ringing immediately. You know, that's a great the three songs free. Uh, that's awesome. That was good. It worked. It definitely right. worked. Um, it, I was just thinking these people don't know who I am. Uh, there are people that are better than me in town. I'm 24, 25 years old, I think, and. I need I need a lot of people to come through so that I can have you know so I can get good at recording other people. I it just need some fast turnaround with this, and maybe it'll turn into some paying clients. I'm sure that there's going to be a few of them who want to do ten songs, uh, but they'll they'll be happy to only pay for seven. And I'm sure that there will be some people who take me up on three, and you know if I do a good job, we'll come back. Um, and it worked. It worked. Yeah. That was it, it, from that point on. Uh, I could make a living with it. I mean, not a great living, but um, I could pay for rent and stuff. Yeah, no, that's awesome because uh, you put yourself in in the game, and and this is where I find that if you're in that kind of commitment and doing what it takes, and you're in the process like that, that, that tends to lead to other opportunities that yes. will build 
in that direction that you're going in. So Yeah, you just have to figure out how to insert yourself. And obviously, an ad will not really work now. So, you know, it's totally different now, but um, there are things that work now. Um, exactly, that's, that's, that's the just thing, what worked right. then. Yes, it worked then, and now, uh, I, yeah, I suppose it'd be a different story. And I think it's really whoever's looking at doing this uh, that they just have the ad- the attitude of, I'll find what it is that works. Uh, because it's got to be out there. It is out there. Uh, and it's just a matter of being willing to uh, to find it. Yeah, the, there will always be the tactic that works. And I don't, you know, I don't want to get into what tactics work now too much because, you know, what if someone listens to this in three years? I want it to still, <laughs> right. I want this to be relevant. The tactics will change. There might be, com- you know, completely different sites where, People find producers and who, who even knows, but the strategy remains the same, which is that you have to figure out how to insert yourself in the game. Um, it kind of doesn't matter what kind of money you make at first. What matters is that you're getting into the game and it is becoming a regular part of your life. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, here's the thing that I noticed uh, as I was starting to do stuff that... and. And I really also noticed this later where it was like, how when I look at what I did from a more objective standpoint, th- there was a bit of, how did I even do that? Because there's so many reasons always for why things could be bad. You know, there's, there's plenty of reasons that, that your mind will come up with for uh, why it's not realistic uh, or, or whatever downside of things are. And I remember in particular that I've been doing it for a while, and I was already doing more of the, the indie type of bands. And a guy came over who had been trying to work his way up through a studio in Miami. And I remember, because I was still doing stuff out of my second floor apartment. Mm-hmm. And he was looking around, and he's like, how did you do this? You know, because and he ha- And he started telling me how hard it was for the way that he was going about it. And it let me know that... that having that single-mindedness and not paying, you know, consciously not dwelling on any of these potential reasons of not to is, is really the only way that you can do it because uh, there's always a reason for why you can't do it. So it was a dude who wanted to do the same thing and yes. didn't, under, didn't understand he how you believe. managed to do it. He was looking around and he was looking at all the, the stuff that I had already done and and I'll never forget it because he had this disbelief. He was just like, how are you doing this? Uh, because he had his whole drama story of the of of how tough it was. Um, and and I, it wasn't that I didn't believe him, but it was just that thing of uh, in any situation, there's going to be the a bad reason. <laughs> if you look hard enough, you'll find a crappy reason for why it's going to be so hard. But I just never... I, I knew early on that that uh, to not dwell on that. And what I found out of that is that good things, it seemed to be that good things would come out of that kind of attitude. You know, it's so easy to find reasons why something won't work. And I find that that's the attitude that most people have about things that I guess seem, I don't know, uh, ambitious or... Right, unrealistic because they don't know anyone who did it, or, or for whatever reason. So I, uh, man, that's one thing that I've done, 
and I still do actively is I ignore those people and <laughs> yeah. I try to cut them out of my life um, as much as possible because, um, you know, I've realized that I'm I'm sensitive to that sort of thing. Yes, and so am I. I can't, yeah. yeah, I can't let them send me into a uh, any sort of a tailspin. So I just don't, you know, I banish it from my life. Absolutely. I, I'm a big fan of uh, what, what I would call managing your personal space uh, to create, to, to be responsible for the environment that you're creating uh, so that you can try to create something. Uh, because it takes a bit, if, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, you're not in some company that's are, that the structure is already there. You're basically making up the whole thing. Uh, and so you you've got to manage that space. And so, yeah, if you've got somebody where even if it's subtle or however, uh, if it's kind of a downer where they're coming from, you got to take a look at not whether what they're saying is true, but, but if it's having an impact on you to, to do what you got to do to, to keep things positive. Well, also it's, you know, it might be completely innocent on their part too. True. It's just, they just don't get it. Um, they right. just, you know, you only you have your own vision, and definitely through communication, like we were talking about earlier, uh, you can make sure that you're on the same page with people. But at first, especially, and when you're talking about people that are not your business partners, who are just people you know in your life, uh, to expect them to share your vision is kind of uh, I don't know, naive and also just disrespectful and. Uh, not that smart because how how could they have your vision? They're not you. Um, it's just expecting the impossible almost. So I just learned to kind of not even share it with people unless um, it was already something or it was somebody who I already knew was kind of an entrepreneur and kind of got it. Yeah, I think you're making a really good point. It, uh because if you're try if you're trying to get approval uh, or expecting people to be in a certain place before you've really come through with any results, uh, it's not a realistic thing to expect them to be anywhere. So there is that part also to me where uh, that you're not taking anything personally. You know, people are just doing what they're doing, and it may be a reflection. Like you know, if you're because you're really trying to reach for something, and whether they're conscious of it or not, that that they're not taking on that attitude. So it, it's just not something that they can relate to. But then I notice too, you know, when, if you're having results, you know, people respond to that. It's kind of good not to be sharing with people. I think it's a really good point that you're bringing up. Yeah. At least be very careful about it, especially when you're, you know, in the infancy of an idea, uh, because the last thing you need is for you to start believing that it's impossible. Because then you're going to make that true. Absolutely. Absolutely. This goes for bands, too. <laughs> you oh, yeah. Yeah. Can't listen to, can't listen to the naysayers. So, uh, so about this guy, like, uh, just out of curiosity, so when he couldn't believe how you did it, did he ever assume that someone just gave it to you or that it was luck or something? I, you know, I don't remember the exact answer that I gave him. I mean, he asked me at the time and, and I know I gave him some sort of, of answer about it. It was something I, I will never forget because of just how it was kind of an affirmation of what, at least at that point that, that I 
had created for myself. I, I'm pretty sure I answered him. Uh, I don't remember the answer though. Well, I'm just well, I was just curious because uh, this used to happen to me a lot back when I built my first studio and and the band got signed and you know good things were happening. A lot of people's response was not. He worked his ass off, or you know, right. <laughs> he, he, he he personally handed out twenty five thousand CDs that he printed in his house on a CD burner, which eventually wow led, led to connections. That they didn't say that they said his dad gave it to him or something, because that's you know, because then they can then they don't have to hold themselves accountable for the work that they're not doing. Then it's just like, he was lucky. His dad gave it to him. Uh, so when I don't have results, yeah, I just don't have a dad who will give it to me. And it's like, no, man, you're just not doing the work, but you don't want to admit that. So, Yeah, that's, yes. And we're certainly in an age where when you look at YouTube comments on anything, you know, it, it kind of goes into how much, non-truth, <laughs> you know, and, you know, to me, the whole thing of opinions and interpretations, and to me, that's not really where the action is. I personally don't even care so much about my own opinion. Uh, I'm more interested in results. And so you find people who kind of talk about uh, the story of something or their opinion about it, and it will have little or no truth to it. And how can anyone know, really, without really talking to you? Uh, just as how can I know anything about anyone else uh, unless I really talk to them about what's happening for them? Uh, yeah, and I exactly. think yeah, and so I think that's one of the things to cut out <laughs> if you're really trying to create something. The the question is is how much is it really doing to get to where you need to be? And it's that difference between talking about something and then really getting down to here's what I'm committed to, and these are the steps. And and doing them, so yeah, that's great advice. Uh, I agree with everything that you just said. If you're like most producers, you're dialing a drum sounds the old-fashioned way by trial and error, swapping out drums, heads, and mics until you finally find something that works. Oftentimes, for several exhausting and tedious days, sound familiar, right? I know I have spent up to a week getting drum sounds in the past before I knew some of this stuff. So guess what? It doesn't have to be so painful. Ultimate Drum Production is our brand new course that teaches you the scientific method for dialing in the perfect drum sound on the very first try. Exactly, the first try, not the hundredth try. It explains in extreme detail the sonic character of every single component of drum sound with exhaustive profiles of every kind of drum head, shell material, bearing edge and hoop, as well as ridiculously detailed tutorials on mic selection, placement and room choice, editing, and mixing. And when you understand drum tone at such a fundamental, insanely deep level, it's like having a set of tone Legos you can use to easily build the sound you hear in your head. You don't need to guess and check. You just assemble the building blocks however you want. To find out more and get access to exclusive pre-order pricing, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com slash pre-order and we'll see you in class. Okay, so back to your story. So it's uh, three years later, um, you built this place. People are wowed that you 
could even do it in the first place. Um, when, when did it start to pick up into, I guess, getting closer to working with, I guess, bands that broke your career, for instance? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, at first I started and I was just doing whatever I could, you know, uh, just using the studio and just making money at an hourly rate. And, and then one day I met the drummer, uh, he, he, uh, was running the drum shop at a music store, uh, and he was in a band called the Vacant Andes, and they were looking for somebody to record their stuff. And and so we ended up working together. And and uh, a guy had just joined the band, uh, and that was Chris Caraba of later on to be Further Seems Forever and Dashboard Confessional. Mm-hmm. So we started like that, and we had done a few things together. And then uh, I also at the same time... Oh, so I did... Well, I worked with them, and then... I worked with, through them, I started working with other local bands and I did a split EP and one of the bands was uh, Further Seems Forever and that was on a very small label and uh, it, it was a guy, uh, Chad Johnson, uh, and he had a very small label called Take Hold Records out of, I think it was Alabama and through that then he, he called me and he said, oh, I, you know, I love the work that you're doing and I've got some other bands. Uh mm-hmm. And so then Chad went on to Tooth and Nail, and these are the the series of events uh, to me that that started to happen to to lead me to those opportunities. So when J- uh, Chad joined Tooth and Nail, and they picked up Further Seems Forever, uh, and that was my first real, uh, you know, bigger gig. I'd actually with Chad uh, had done a couple of the Under Oath records because Under Oath was another band that he had, and so I'd done a. a couple albums uh, with them. Uh, and then they signed to Tooth and Nail as well. Uh, and so those were like the... And then Chris came to me and he said, hey, I d- I'm doing this side project uh, of, of acoustic stuff. And uh, we did four songs. And then that led to doing a, 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 a full acoustic album called Swiss Army Romance. And, and that's where things started really taking off for him. Uh, and then the Further Seems Forever record. And, that, and that's kind of the time where all this momentum started happening uh, with the bands that I was recording. So how many years is this after you, I guess, decided you wanted to do this? Well, shoot, this is about a good five years uh, into it, uh, where I'd say about five years I then worked with the Vacant Andes, and, and, and now we're getting into, you know, the year 2000, 2001, I think is when The Moon is Down, Further Seems Forever uh, came out. Um, and so it was like five going into six years. That's when mm-hmm. the momentum really started to go. Okay, that's you know, that's not uh, that's not a trivial amount of time at all. Uh, oh, it was a very slow build. Yeah, were you already by that point making a full living and yes, good living? Okay. Yeah, I had gotten out of uh, you know I'd say three years before that, uh, at least three years, three to four years before that, that I was able to stop uh, delivering pizza. Uh, and just generate enough mo- money on my own to to do it. Okay, so I mean, yeah. So even after uh, becoming pro, like it still took years. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's once again. I just wanted to emphasize for people that shit takes time. Uh, yes, yes, a long time, usually. So can we talk now that now that we've got into lots of the stuff that you're known for? I actually have some recording questions about some of this stuff because uh, 
we we actually have some people who submitted questions for you. Oh, okay. Um, so I want to ask you a few of these, and then I want to get to back to talking about more of your story. Okay. So, all right. So this is this guy's real name, by the way. Um, so Miami Dolphin is asking, sorry <laughs> if this is a bit long-winded. Uh, by the way, th- this is his real name. I've seen his driver's license. Oh, but, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I know. Um, Okay, so he says, uh, sorry if this is a bit long-winded. About 10 years ago, you mixed and produced one of my favorite songs from There for Tomorrow called Remember When uh, Used to Be Used to It. Uh, After listening to that entire album, I realized I wanted to be not just a mixer but a producer. Can you go over anything you remember from the tracking of that album or the production of A Little Faster? Side note, the intricacies of the second verse, intricacies of the second verse, um, of remember when is still something I go for reference. I reference all the time, whether it be for climactic buildups or song structure. Interesting. I, you know, I kind of remember the song, but not totally. Uh, and there for tomorrow, uh, which the guys are great. And that's, uh, uh, is it Chris Camarada, uh, who's now drumming for dashboard, uh, I'm sorry if I got the last name wrong. And then uh, Micah, who's a singer, who's an incredibly talented dude. That record, actually, you know, we started off, we did uh, an EP before that as a demo. And things went real well with those guys. And they ended up getting signed. And I I think it was Hopeless Records. And then we had this record uh, a little faster. And that was a cool experience because actually four of the songs uh, David Bendith uh, did the pre-production on. And then he also mixed those songs, but I did the tracking on. The question, though, I'm sorry, what what was the particular of the well, question? Well, he actually just was wondering if, uh, you know, if you can go over anything you remember from the tracking um, or of the album or just of the production of A Little Faster. Yeah, I mean, that was like, I, I think it might have been the only time where David uh, Bendith had you know, they'd gone up and spent some time with him on four of the tracks. And then the guys came in and and, uh, and we did the whole record. I mean, I'm trying to think anything particular. You know, there, there was nothing really uh, that I did necessarily differently. Uh, I do love that record. I mean, I thought the songs on it were, were great. I do know, too, uh, because at the time I mixed that, um, I mixed that on the SSL. And uh, and my chops uh, were were okay, but you know not not great. And and David Bendith uh, is David Bendith, and uh, so I was <laughs> trying to listen to stuff he had done, and uh, you know trying not to at least uh, embarrass myself. So was that so was that your first time uh, kind of being on the same project as someone that's basically you know. A, I guess a, a total, total like I don't know. Like I consider him like an A-list for like rock oh, yeah. and uh, this stuff. Yeah, was yeah. that your first time working with someone of that level? Yeah, as far as uh, as far as somebody who was doing pre-production and uh, mm-hmm. you know on on some of the songs and you know we talked back and forth a few times and so yeah that particular experience uh, and, and like I say when when I was mixing because I was trying to do some stuff more on the the SSL and had found a studio where I could do work out of and we'd arranged a good rate. And, um, and like I say, I was just trying to make sure that I did a decent enough job 
not not for it to be you know to sound so a and b uh, between yeah. the two mixes you know uh, that was that scary or stressful or fun or all of the above well it it was a bit stressful i mean i you know it was different too it was it was a different experience because there's something to me about the working relationship you have with a band i i find that all of the the environment of what album it is for the band has a big impact in that if there's some success, the attitude of the band changes and, mm-hmm. and so the dynamics change with, with each record. And having David in the mix, and David has a very different style than than mine. Uh, so it was interesting for me that they went and worked with him and then coming back and uh, and it wasn't, it, it didn't end up being a problem. I loved what we did and, and there wasn't any problem per se, but it was a different thing with them going and working with somebody uh, with a much different way of doing things, and then and then them coming back, and then us doing the rest of the record. Man, that reminds me of like when I I used to work under pretty awesome producer. There was a band that um, I you know I was his like assistant engineer, and I remember this one band had gone to. Uh, another producer who was also a really good writer and in a band they wanted to emulate and they produced or wrote um, or had like very, very developed pre-pro versions of six of the 12 songs with that guy. And what he did was basically 180 from what we would do. Um, And so it was... It was very interesting trying to get that to work with the rest of the record and not pissing him off and not, like, ruining what he did. Um, interesting. Yes, yes. Yeah, because we had to re-record everything. Um, oh, so, wow, okay. Yeah, so kind of, like, keeping it in the spirit of what that guy wanted, but, you know, he's a great producer in his own right. Like, um, it's just kind of weird. It it was kind of weird. I just, I remember that being the main thing, that it was kind of a weird thing to try, but ended up being positive because got better as a result. Yeah. You know, I was, (laughs) I was braced. You know, I know uh, David is uh, very much knows what he's going after. And, 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 uh, and so I was kind of bracing myself to see if, you know, he, I didn't know what what he thought of the work that I had done, or or that, you know, uh, be listening to stuff I was doing and was, you know, not going to be happy about it. And 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 very fortunately, uh, everything went went well. I mean, I'm sure he would have told you if uh, he wasn't. Cool oh, I knew that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was something he wasn't. And that's kind of like, oh, let's you know. I hope uh, you know we'll see how this goes. But uh, it it was actually very cool, and and uh, and it was great to listen to what he would do you know, with the band. I mean, I learned the big thing that I learned from David because he, he did mix a few things that I had tracked and it was, it's to be simpler, you know, than you, you know, that, that to not have, you know, you don't need a, a thousand things going on all the time. And that's been one of the things that sometimes can be uh, a struggle with a band that, that they want so many parts and then in the mix, they want to hear everything. And, and definitely with, with David to, you know, that, to only have a couple things featured and push other things back so that your brain can tune in on that's obviously worked uh, where where the the listener can tune in on those things and not be distracted by 20 other parts going on and you know it's it's interesting what a band 
can sometimes imagine is possible in their heads about a mix. Like, if, yeah. you know, they, have, <laughs> they have like an idea in their heads of, for uh, you know, and I've done this too when I was a band member. Uh, when, you know, I wanted to have um, raging fast death metal with like a ton of synths and orchestra and multi-layered vocals. And, you know, our producer was just like, dude, this, you know, you're going to have to pick or you have to like rearrange this because this is not all going to, you're not going to be able to hear this all. Um, something has to give. and Exactly, yes. It was hard to get me to understand it back then, actually. So um, I know from a musician's standpoint, that's, it's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. How have you, um, how have you gotten musicians to understand that? Yes, that's a great thing. And it, it very much, uh, well, I tell them what my job is, which is that I'm looking at the song and what's going to have the biggest impact uh, emotionally to the, the listener. So my job is actually to look at the song as a whole and not look at everyone's part and and that I understand that their parts can be precious to them. But at the same time, uh, if you're coming to me, one of the big things I'm going to tell you is that that not everything can, you know, it's not going to always be about listen to my cool part that I'm doing if it doesn't work emotionally for what's needed in that section or maybe to pick our moments, you know, uh, and so that's the thing I'm kind of saying that I'm the guy looking at the whole song uh, mm -hmm. and that it's not about the individual parts. And that usually sets a good tone. I've had a couple of moments. Uh, I had one particular with a, with a bass player where literally when he started tracking his parts, um, I'd say about 10% of his notes were root notes. And I stopped and I'm like, dude, what Ten, are you, what that's are you it. 10%. Yeah, I mean, like one out of every five chords would actually land on the chord. And for some reason in this Oof. scenario, we were doing the bass after uh, some of the guitars were laid down. And uh, so about a minute into it, and it's amazing how much a bass can change a song if, oh, yeah. if someone's not playing the root notes. And and I stopped it and, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Uh, and he goes, oh, I, I don't like root notes. And, oh, and I'm like, <laughs> and I immediately stopped the session and, uh, and I was like, okay, guys, we, we got to have a meeting here because this is, this is like ruining it to me. And the other guys agreed. Uh, I don't think the guy was in the band that much longer. <laughs> well, that's, that's a major, that's a major issue right there. Cause like you said that it's amazing how quickly bass can ruin a song if they're not playing the roots or not playing the right thing. Um, you know, it can, it can create a whole different chord. Um, if oh, totally. They're yeah. playing a different, if they're playing a different note than the root um, or, you know, the, it can create a different harmonic motion. It can cause a lot of havoc if it's not designed to work that way. Um, and if the guy's not into, to, you know, his role as a bass player, it's almost like that that relationship can't continue. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, well, particularly if the guys are wanting to reach a certain type of audience, that uh, you know things start getting simpler. You mm -hmm. know, and and I ask them, I say, listen, do do you want your fans to be ten musicians coming to check you guys out at your gig, or do you want a big crowd who's really you know that 
that more uh, fan base type of thing, or do you want to be a musician's band? You know, so that's one of the things about really finding out what the guys are are looking to do. I have no problem with making a musician's record, but let's all know that uh, before we, you know, before we start. Absolutely. You know, and I did have a question for you, and I think you already answered it, but uh, the question is just that basically a lot of the bands that you work with have very high energy music, but with crystal clear recordings. And I was wondering, how do you go about achieving that level of clarity without making the song album sound sterile? And it sounds like you just a- answered it by taking out non-essential things. Yeah, th- this is what I learned a lot from George Martin, uh, the Beatles producer, where, you know, it's it's about how all these different parts work together. So I'm very aware and sensitive to the rhythms that each of the parts are doing. It's not just the drums creating rhythm, but there's all types of avenues of layering of different types of rhythm with the guitar part, with the keyboard part, with the bass part, and particularly how are all those parts relating and grooving with the the phrasing of the vocal. And that's a big thing for me is what's happening with the phrasing of the vocal and making sure these parts are creating this whole, because Otherwise, you get that wall of shit. You know, it just sounds like an undefinable wall of crap. Uh, and I'm, as opposed to being a fine-tuned machine where everything oh, yeah. works together. Yeah, where where it really has that uh, tastefully done, orchestrated sound. And when when we get it right, and when the mix is right, it's just freaking awesome. And yeah, there's just and there's a lot of great guys who who do some great work like that. So you know, so speaking of vocals, since you just said that it's kind of all based on that. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to tracking vocals? Well, one of the things, uh, and and I prepare the vocal, uh, the vocalist for how I like to do things, and that is that I'll tell them that when we come in and when I do track, there'll be a couple takes where I want them to just do the song the way they're feeling it. But then I'll do other takes uh, that have a certain approach to it. So I may say, you know what, on this take, be more emotional than you think you need to be. And I start finding that spot uh, where it's overdone. I actually want to hear too far. And mm-hmm. and I tell them, listen, the worst that it's going to be is it's going to sound stupid. And we don't, you know, and I make sure the band, because sometimes the band is in the room and they're laughing. And I'm like, listen, guys, you know, this is about, let's be supportive because I need the singer to put his guts on the table. And so I kind of find out emotionally the kind of range. Because sometimes, a lot of times when I hear the demo, I'm like, okay, this this is sounding cool, but I could hear where the singer could really communicate more effectively. So there's the, you know, over emotional takes and then over emotional takes. And then enunciation is a big thing that I find. To do a couple takes, a lot of singers, they're, they're not always uh, pronouncing their words as good. And to me, enunciation... Regardless of the volume, it, it conveys power and authority. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm looking for from a vocal take is for them to just be owning the song. You know, that is the thing that people are listening for. And, you know, you want to have somebody where, you know, a guy like Anthony Green, where, where you listen to him and you're like, Jesus, this guy's Dude, you know, he's just so good. So freaking good. Yeah. And, and it's because his ass is on the table and he's the emotions there. And I'm not so much you know, with guys like that, uh, where the enunciation, uh, is always the thing. I kind of feel that out as well, but I get a couple of takes where they're over enunciating. And the thing for me then is to, 
Um, it depends who the singer is. More often than not, I like to then put the pieces together and create something. Uh, and that's one of, to me, if I had a real strong point for me that, that I find I'm good at, is putting the different vocal pieces together to create a, a, a really good emotional vocal. Now, a couple guys like Jason Lancaster, uh, Go Radio, who just is really gifted. And it's just like, dude, just do three takes beginning to end and, uh, and let me see what I got. And, uh, and when a guy like that, some, some singers, it's like when they get in the right space, they're on fire and they can just go in and, and just kick it out. Uh, so I feel it out with each singer. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, in that case, obviously just get out of the way. Exactly. Exactly. And so to you, um, so it sounds like the artistic emotional side is number one. Does uh, does the technical gear side of it matter to you as much, or is that equally as important? Where do, where is that for you on the hierarchy? It's equally as important because if the if the recording has a clarity and an openness to it, to me that increases the vibration. Uh, of the music itself, because music to me, part of it is that it's vibration and we respond emotionally to vibration. If it's clear and there's, you know, there isn't this unheard layer of dirt and fuzz going on, mm-hmm. if, if you've got bad clocking, digital clock. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> right? And and it brings me back to where the album was amazing, but for me, it kind of showed what not great clocking sounded like it was the first periphery record. Uh, where he was really doing it, and, and I may be wrong on this, but but it just had a, f- a little bit of a fuzziness to it. Uh, the record's amazing, and it certainly didn't stop anything. But a- as far as what I was, what I'm shooting for, and then of course later as they kept going, the, the quality, of course, uh, oh yeah, went yeah. up significantly. Um, but my early days, particularly when I, you know, those that would be the struggle, you know, to to hear stuff and kind of be sad about what what I'm hearing in my head and and fortunately these days uh I, I like the the level of clarity so it's very important both of them are so just for the for all the engineers out there what because now everyone's going to be curious what what is your ideal vocal chain or do you have an ideal vocal chain or a, a go-to well one of the things that made a nice difference I did a lot of research and it's not cheap uh but when I was studying some of the mixers, the the bigger mixers uh, out there, as far as what are the pieces of gear that they're using to to get a really phenomenal sound, I started realizing how important your uh, digital clock is. And so at a certain point, and I'd say this was in 2010, I just went for it a really good gig and I was like, screw it, I'm just going to go for this. And I Ended up getting the Antelope Audio. Uh, I got the Trinity clock with the Atomic oh, clock. Oh man, that's 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 the good stuff. And and it it is it it makes a difference. And uh, and and for me, I my attitude uh, like one of the things I am into. In fact, I've been doing this over the last few nights. Is uh, I, I've been building up my collection of high resolution audio. Uh, stuff that's at like 24-bit 96K or 24-bit 192 or even something called DSD. And I'll listen to some of these audio file recordings where everything was, 
you know, about getting the best recording possible. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's been of tremendous value to hear what the cutting edge of audio recording sounds like, because it definitely puts it in perspective when you're hearing an MP3 uh, of something that wasn't recorded with that same kind of detail. So uh, it, it's very easy to um, to forget how good it can be if you're just used to, you know, YouTube, for instance. That's one of the main ways people consume music. And uh, just, you know, this is obviously nowhere near um, 24-bit 96K. But if you put on a service like Tidal, for instance, because they do, I think they have the highest quality streaming out of any of the big services. Yes. Man, if you put up a Tidal and Hi-Fi mode versus YouTube... The difference is major, major. Yeah. And and it affects the music, and uh, it's not subtle how it affects the music and the feel. And especially once you start to have more layered music, this it starts to make a much more... A much more of a difference and um, down to how much the rhythms of other layers actually punch through, how much you can actually oh, absolutely. feel them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not subtle. No, it, it, um, to me, there's been certain points where when I do make an upgrade in something to hear the impact, uh, to me, a big element uh, because I record out of my uh, home. Uh, and one of the things that the big studios have is that their electricity is clean. Uh, and so, yes. <laughs> and so having some things, you know, I have a dedicated line and recently I picked up and it was a bit of a risk. That's the other thing is you take a little bit of a, a risk of getting certain pieces of gear and to see it's like, okay, either I'm just, I'll have to just sell this thing and take some sort of loss or it's going to make a difference. And I upgraded my power conditioner and, uh, I I couldn't believe how much of a difference. Uh, it's like it takes away a layer of dirt that you didn't even know was there. And it translates into, uh, instead of mixing to compensate for things, you've got more room. The, the, the frequency range is more usable. So you can go in different directions that, that maybe before you'd end up having to filter, notch, filter out certain frequencies. But now, because the sound is cleaner, it's more usable. So on one end, you take what you have and you do it, but you do yourself a disservice if you have a love for music to not know what the the higher end uh, sounds like uh, and and to reach for that at the same time. Yeah, so it shouldn't you know it shouldn't stop you if you don't if you can't afford it, but be aware of it and go in that direction. Yeah, at least know because I I promise you, you know, and it's it's interesting because I find a lot of people and even, you know, some people are very passionate about not caring. Uh or even this conversation of, well, since it's going to end up like this anyway, how much of a difference is it making? And it's like all the difference in the world. I mean, uh particularly if you listen to some of the 90s before Pro Tools was such a big part of things. Mm-hmm. Uh some of like the you know, like Eric Valentine, who's one of my idols, who's who is so deeply committed to genius. great genius, genius. And so his first record, uh, when I was mixing, uh, there was a band called The Academy Is, and I was mixing on this SSL, uh, and I just threw myself into mixing on that board, uh, and I was using his first record with Third Eye Blind. Uh, as a reference, which was a thorough, thoroughly frustrating experience. 
I can imagine it yeah. would make you kind of sad at times. Yes, yes, because <laughs> I was turning knobs and I'm like, why am I not able to get what this man is getting? Uh, but it was such a great learning, you know. Uh, but when you listen to that record that is just that analog through a console sound, uh, and I listened to it just a few months ago with a band. I was like, oh, let me let me put this on. And it was just like, oh, my God, this is what, you know, yeah, you just you just hear uh, all analog compression and 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 you hear what it sounds like. And it's like, yeah, it's it's good to know what that does sound like. But, you know, like kind of, you know, kind of like thinking back earlier in our conversation, talking about how negativity can um, derail you. I also think and, you know, stop me if you disagree with me. I do think that there's a certain point where sometimes people can distract themselves with gear and not focus on the music um, or or think that they can't get better unless they get a certain piece of gear. And I think that's not a positive thing. No, that's yes, that's that's uh, and I've I've confronted that my myself uh, in in my career where it's like, okay, take what you have because I'm always fifty thousand dollars away from where I'd yeah. like to be gear wise. So there's almost a uh, yeah, there's there's a thing that you part of managing myself is is coming to a point, you know, it's like, okay, if I want something, I'll get it when I get it and I can't turn it into something or let it limit me. And it helps to take what you have and push yourself as far as you can mm-hmm. make what you have work. That's what's wild about doing this is it's it's also now with the computer and all the plugins and how do I combine these things? There's an infinite way of coming to a sound. And so you have all these great talented producers who are taking their own way of putting these things together and coming up with their own side. There's such a huge creative element uh, in that regard. Uh, and that's something that, uh, particularly these days that I'm becoming much more interested listening to some, what, what some of these other guys are doing and they're getting such a great sound and how are they using their plugins and, and gear, which is what's amazing about your, the, the nail, the mix, uh, site. Um, the, the, thank you. Yeah. The period of time that we're in that you have access in this, tutorial type of way to learn from people who've been doing it. Um, I didn't have that at all. Uh, you know, nor did I, I. <laughs> right. And on one end there was, you know, there was that Avenue of, I could have been an assistant or gone, gone that route. But what at the time my path was going in a, in a completely homegrown way. And I just had to just keep trying stuff, uh, until it worked. And I would have loved to have had access to the kind of information that, that you guys and, and what's out there on YouTube, and you know, there's just all these different avenues now to learn. Well, and let's be real, lots there's not as many opportunities now for people to be an assistant. Um, not yes. like not like there were. So um, I feel like there's that much more need for something like Nail the Mix. Um, though I would have killed for it in the early 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it is wild how things uh, change. Uh, and and what worked yesterday absolutely doesn't work today, but at the same time, it's then just figuring it out. So, so I guess in terms of gear, is there like a, a microphone you favor over others or whatever, or um, is that 
is that stuff down to the particular session? Yeah, you know, uh, I've had periods where I've had, uh, you know, access to a bunch of microphones. I've kind of distilled things down. And and so my main vocal mic uh, is this Neumann uh, M149 that I've had for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I find that to get, if I combine it with the right colored type of like 1176 type of compression, uh, it just combines and makes a really big, clear sound while also having uh, some character. And then I have uh, another mic if it's a very kind of piercing type of vocalist because uh, the 149 doesn't respond well to being, you know, very nasally. Or, and so uh, I have an, another microphone that's, uh, that's for that. And I found that to, to work out pretty good. Like most of the time. Yes. Cool. I actually have never really, you know, because... Uh, Definitely, if it's something that's just like, okay, this isn't working, you know, uh, I, I can call some people up or however, but it just has been that I, I haven't needed to. I've been real pleased with the results. So um, more on the topic of tracking, can you talk a little bit about a typical session for tracking drums with you? Um, do you have like a preferred kit to track with or a preferred room? Do you have like a preferred method for going about it? You know, um one of the things for me is I kind of have a, you know, I'll talk to the band. I'll see what they have. I have a house kit. Uh, there's there's uh, some people I know that I can get other stuff. And we'll just talk about what we're, what we're shooting for. But it's not really an elaborate thing. I know I was listening. Uh, you, you had uh, Ramesh on, who's awesome. Yes. And, uh, and, and listening to, you know, the, the kind of detail. And I guess a lot of times for me, the budget isn't, really there to, to be that elaborate. And I've definitely had, you know, there's definitely projects here and there that there's room for that, but we kind of go and I kind of have that drum getting the drum sound day. And we, you know, talk about what we're shooting for and we'll have the stuff and we'll try a few things. It's not quite as elaborate as uh, what he was going for, but yeah, what he does. R- but Elaborate. Do- I mean, Romesh is great, but uh, elaborate doesn't always mean better. Yeah. Um, it, it sometimes, you know, so it, th- this is definitely not about Romesh, and just need to clarify this. But uh, sometimes I know I've gotten to mix like um, sessions that come in where it was like thirty-two microphones on the drums, and <laughs> right? <laughs> all kind, all everything you can think of, and uh, the the drums were so out of tune that you know all <laughs> the rooms sucked. Everything sucked because you could hear just out of tune, shitty drums, and everything. And it didn't didn't matter that it was elaborate. And I've gotten sessions from people that are you know that are sixteen and sound amazing, or eight sometimes and sound amazing. Um, so you know, I, I don't think it has to be elaborate to be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found what works. Uh, and that's part of the thing in my process is uh, part of it is an efficiency thing. Uh, and what, you know, to look at the question of what actually is going to get me the result. Uh, sometimes it's it ends up being different um, if you're looking at it just like, what, what do we have to do to, to get there and get there efficiently as well. So I'll tend to just try, you know, I'm I always stay open to trying whatever works. Like I have a certain way of, mm-hmm. of doing it. I've got, you know, my, my house, the main living room, and it's on a drum stage. Uh, and then there's high 
uh, you know, a high A-frame ceiling. And then I'm using these uh, ASC tube traps. That's a big thing that makes the house work is uh, using these tube traps. And I have a pretty big collection of those. And there's room to move those around to use more or less of those to create a certain vibe. If I'm looking for a more roomy vibe or a more, you know, up-close kit sound. Uh, and so that's part of as well as as well as the mic positioning, of course. Yeah, that's, that's what I find is one of the most important things about especially a home drum room, which, uh, you know, I had for four years. I had a really nice one in Sanford, Florida. Um, but still, even so, I found that the most important thing was to have options to be able to change the acoustics of the room. Um, that made all the difference in the world. Because even, you know, for example, even if the room sounded great and roomy, uh, there are sometimes where the average tempos on an album are like 240. And there's tons of double, double <laughs> bass. And, <laughs> right, uh, right, you know, right. you don't want a ton of room coming through everything. You want it to sound smaller. So I find that that's uh, that's been, for me, one of the most effective tools to have is uh, portable acoustic treatment for a drum room. Yeah, that's the, the tube traps have been, you know, a, a huge part of me being able to dial in the kind of sound that uh that I'm looking for and and it is changeable because uh the tube traps also one side absorbs but then if you flip it uh it diffuses and so that kind of makes it a cool uh mm -hmm. thing to be able to change around and play with so actually I've got a question here for another question from a listener uh this is from Mike Anderson and he says James is a phenomenal engineer and producer I've worked with him on two occasions now yeah yeah and uh his questions are uh, he's got a few. So first one is, how does James place vocals so clear and powerful in a mix while still maintaining the original tonality of the singer? Ah, um, interesting. As far as uh, Mike's, Mike's a great guy and he's very talented. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting in mixing. Uh, over the past uh, year and a half is where uh, I I've really gotten into mixing other people's stuff a lot more. And so that's been a learning process of getting in different tracks. And, and I'm sure you went through the, the same thing. And so it's an interesting thing to get vocals recorded at different quality levels. And what do you do? Uh, so the first thing, so there's definitely a chain of plugins. And, and one of the things is filtering out what isn't needed. So filtering out that low end, you know, finding the real critical fr usable frequency range and getting rid of uh, the the rest of it, and mm -hmm. I tend to do that first to kind of get out any of the, you know, if, if there's a certain weird low mid sound or however, just to kind of clean it up, and then I use a few different compressor plugins that'll have a different character, and then sometimes using a multi band mixed in there, uh, and then also usually during the choruses to mix in a little bit of a distortion, you know, finding that kind of parallel. Uh, Distortion, yeah. Is that is that answering it? I I think so. Okay, cool, cool. And uh, he has a couple other ones, and I think they're pretty good um, questions. Here's another one. How does he approach, or James? How do you approach mix production notes when mixing songs that you didn't produce? Ah, uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. Different guys will have different things about it. You know, I'll look over the notes, and this is something I've had to kind of feel out as I'm as I'm doing it, uh, because. Production notes are cool, 
But then I find if I'm trying to adhere to them while I'm doing my thing, it gets in the way of me doing my thing, which is part of what they're coming to me for. So I'll look at the notes in general, but then I also kind of do my thing. Uh, There's a certain, I'm very much of a feel type of person with this stuff. Uh, And so I'll kind of try to honor both. And so I'll do my thing with it and then look over the notes again and make sure that they're somewhat. And sometimes it's interesting because words are a funny thing when someone's describing something to you. If someone says, (laughs) when someone says, uh, I want the the chorus to soar, you know, it's like, okay. You know, um, for me, I'm, I'm looking, of course, the, obviously the, the chorus to have an impact, but it's left to interpretation. And so, and it kind of comes down to at a certain point where if I do my thing and I kind of look over the notes, if it's still not quite doing it, uh, then it's a matter of getting technical. You know, it's like, well, what to you translates technically to that emotion that you're looking for? Uh, and then we'll, you know, get into the mix changes from there to, you know, to have our, it work out. I, th- I believe that our second podcast episode, second or third, I don't remember, um, was called Musical Translator. And it's all about, <laughs> it's all about how a producer or a mixer's job, you know, when you break it all down, um, that's kind of what the job is, is to take these ideas from the musicians and learn how to translate them into something, into what's supposed to come out of the speakers and what they actually mean. <laughs> That's yeah. one of the main things you got to know how to do. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a process, you know, I mean, uh, sometimes I've nailed it right away. And then sometimes my interpretation of what they're saying uh, is initially different than, than how they're hearing it. And, and so we work on that, but. And I'm sure that sometimes, you know, if it's different, sometimes it could be better in their opinion, sometimes not. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, you got to just figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ruben Sanchez is asking, how do you produce a band like IC Stars in terms of arrangements and digital instruments? Do you first start with a song only with guitar, bass, and drums, and then add digital instruments and maybe remove some guitars or bass in some parts? Um, you know, it depends on the situation because... Well, it's a little more often these days than than it used to be, but sometimes the bands are doing pretty elaborate demos, uh, and sometimes there's a lot of cool stuff in there that could be used or at least be a good starting point. If I'm seeing that there's someone in particular who's good with recording on their own and they've got some elements in there, uh, then I have them make me stems of the audio files and I'll import them in and we can still adjust the tempo a little bit, but it's just a starting point. And I'm not sure if I'm t- totally getting to the, the question, but but uh, I use that as a starting point and then we're doing the drums into that. Uh, once, once I sit with it and kind of look at the uh, structure of the song and if there's something major to look at, then we, we address that as far as uh, hopefully any major holes in the songs have been already dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have the band send me stuff so that preferably when they come in, We've looked at, I look for their demos to get to a certain point where it's like, okay, I can take it from here kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, if there's something majorly wrong, like, you know, it, the whole song just sounds like one big verse. And when the chorus comes in, I don't even know when the chorus is coming in kind of thing. It's, we, we address that before they come in because yeah. that time before they come in is the most valuable and stress-free for them. It's not really great to come in and be like, okay, you got to do some major rewriting. Uh, that is not the way that I prefer to work. So when 
they do come in with this stuff that major changes have been made. And then as we're doing, you know, I, I may make some edits to how the structure is going to be. And we talk about stuff and take some notes. And then I start, you know, usually start off with the drums uh, and then mm-hmm. bass and rhythm guitars and so on. Uh, t- tell me if your experience matches this, but in my experience, and obviously there's some exceptions, but in general, when it's a band that wants a lot of digital instruments, you know, and they are like a heavier band or a rock band, and they have that element in their sound. Usually there's a guy in the band who does that. Like, and even if he plays guitar, like he also programs the shit and will generally have it for you. I mean, sometimes bands expect their producer to just come up with all of it, but but most bands who have this stuff, like you know, it's part of their sound, and they they come up with it. You, you know, what's interesting, man, is is uh, my experience has actually been where that's not the case. That's this is exactly what I wa- wanted to uh, hear your your opinion. Yeah, and and so a great example. Well, you know, it's interesting with with hands like houses. Uh, I did the last two records with them, and so uh, the record Unimagine, uh, they had a guy, the the keyboard player. Uh, he had a very interesting style to the way he did stuff. And what we did on that record is we combined things. So mm-hmm. usually, because I get into the programming, uh, if it's if I think it's needed or if they're looking for that. Uh, then I'm usually adding uh, those those kind of elements, and uh, with with him and I on that record, we combine things. But then the next record, he wasn't in the band anymore, uh, and that changed the dynamic of things. Uh, and so on that record, uh, I actually really dove down into all the sounds that were out there, uh, so that I wasn't you know repeating things and kind of becoming stale on stuff. Uh, and so I did a lot of. Uh, most of the programming on on their last record. Um, Man, you, you just made me think uh, of a bunch of scenarios where what I said earlier doesn't. <laughs> uh, maybe I was talking out my ass because uh, <laughs> I just started thinking. You got me thinking about various records where uh, the band wanted that, and either the guy sucked at making sounds. The you know the one who who wanted all the keyboard parts or whatever, the synth parts, really everything he gave me sounded like a Casio. Or oh, something. no, right, right, or, right. Or it's just stuff that they wanted, and uh, I either had to come up with it myself or find, you know, or, like, contact someone that I knew that was way better than me at programming and get them involved. Um, and that's actually happened quite a bit. So I kind of take back what I said before. <laughs> yeah, you know... Uh- I have found the situation where usually I'm doing some programming and, and, uh, I know on a, a really cool band called separations. I, uh, I hope I'm saying his name, right. Corey Brunneman. Yeah. Well, we don't know. I know Corey. Yeah. So we, we had three different guys doing stuff. Corey did his thing. He did some awesome stuff. Uh, I, I did my thing. And, and then one of the guys in the band, uh, was, was adding stuff. And then the challenge was, you know, what are we keeping? What are we not keeping so that it's not just an onslaught? Mm-hmm. Uh, of stuff, but then a band that I'm recently uh, I'm about to mix a, a really cool band called Never Tell. Uh, the the guy had a lot of his uh, a lot of the programming that he did, and it was such a cool particular style. Uh, and I was like, man, I, I want to leave most of this stuff. This stuff is killer. So I really like it uh, when there's somebody in there and they 
they do their own thing. Uh, it's nice to have somebody ha- having their own thing, and then I can kind of complement that or whatever may be uh, needed. So for producers coming up or people who want to be producers and mixers, do you suggest that they get a good handle on programming um, in order to be able to actually do this? And I'm just wondering, because there, man, there's some guys I know, like, uh, I don't know if you know Zach Cervini or not. Um, he worked for Feldman for years. I think now he's on his own. Oh, okay. Yeah, but, yeah, man, I know he Zach. He is a programming master. Yeah. And there are some guys I know who do make rock records or metal records who also, like, they're fucking amazing at programming and it's part of the one of the reasons for why they have so much work yeah uh, you know it it has been a very valuable tool for me uh and and to stay on top of it uh because man it's always evolving uh and to me the whole uh plug-in synthesizer world that literally stuff comes out that creates genres of music because yes. of the interesting sounds that it makes. And that was a thing for me when uh, working particularly with Hands Like Houses on the last record, where when I really started looking what was out there, I was like, you know what, I'm going to invest in some of this, some of these awesome new type of sounds. It, it had a big impact on the sound. Uh, and I knew it was cool that it was just coming out just as we were doing this record because it would, you know, a matter of time before, you know, a lot of other guys were, were using these killer type of sounds. So as far as, yeah, it would be valuable to answer your yeah. question. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, you know, for better or worse, I, it, it does, I think it does make an impact. And if not to hook up with people and have it be part of your team, uh, as soon that, as possible. That's, that's a big thing that I did because um, I was never great at it. So uh, I would work with like this guy named Eric Gunther who um, has been on the podcast. And he actually got, he joined one of the bands I had him work for called The Contortionist. And uh, basically when bands wanted really good programming and they could, you know, they could pay a little, I would just get him involved because anything he would do is better than anything I would do. And uh, I definitely think people should learn. But if, uh, you know, if it's just not their thing or whatever, definitely find someone who, who can do it. And uh, I have one final question for you because uh, we've actually been on for quite a while and it's been a great episode. Um, this awesome, is the yeah. last question from Mike Anderson, okay. which is... Uh, Kind of the same question that I like to finish these off with, but his is specifically for vocal production. But um, what's the biggest piece of advice you could give to producers who aspire to excel in vocal production? Um, listen to other guys. Listen to the guys who are when when you you know the the thing that's motivating you in the first place. Where where uh, you know study, S- sit down with something, and not you know get into the details of. Uh, why is this working when you hear a record and, and you're just blown away by the vocal production? Uh, it on one end helps to have that inspired sense of things. And, and I like to let that drive me, but it's balanced also with having a technical understanding of what is making something work. Why are people responding so strongly to something? And with vocal production, what is it about, you know, about what's happening uh, uh, t- on a technical end? Mm-hmm. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on and uh, 
weathering the uh, Skype Armageddon and <laughs> being so open with your answers and being being cool to be on for so long because normally the, I mean this is going to be like a two hour plus episode. And oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, a pleasure, uh, a real pleasure, and uh, thank you so much, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's been great. I would love to have you on in the future. I'm sure that we could talk for another two and a half hours. Uh, hell yeah, man! That would be fantastic. Great. Well, have a great rest of your day. You too, man. You take care, bud. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.